Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to The Sediment, the official ASPN conference podcast. This is the first virtual ASPN conference, and although we aren't together and are exhausted after a long day of Zoom talks, we hope this podcast can provide you an opportunity to filter all the information you've received and come away with little pellets of knowledge, The Sediment. Today is Sunday, May 2nd, 2021. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the third episode of The Sediment, the official podcast of the ASPN conference. My name is Stella Shin, and I'm a pediatric nephrologist at Emory University and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia. My co-host tonight is Rebecca. Hi, I'm Rebecca York, and I'm a pediatric nephrologist at Seattle Children's. Day two of the 2021 virtual conference is now in the books, and we are here to share with you all of the exciting topics that were discussed. We have a wonderful panel of guests for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Please introduce yourselves and remember to tell us a fun fact about you. Uh, my name is uh, Pat Brophy. I'm a pediatric nephrologist and the chair of pediatrics at Gallus uh, Center Children's Hospital, University of Rochester. Fun fact, I, I still play hockey. Good morning. For me, it's one in the morning. Uh, so that's a fun fact. I'm a little bit sleepy, so please forgive me. <laughs> fall asleep, but uh, I'm a pediatric nephrologist from the University of Hamburg, and I'm also representing uh, the ESPN, the European Society of Pediatric Nephrology at this meeting, and I'm really excited to be here tonight. Hi, I'm Trey Hunley from uh, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. My fun fact is I am related by marriage to Turk in Scrubs, if you know who Turk is. He was a surgical house officer. (laughs) Oh my goodness, you're like a minor celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't know it. He doesn't know I exist, but his wife and uh, my wife are second cousins. So, Well, that's wonderful. Makes for great reunions. Oh, well, may, may we have one sometime. In L- <laughs> LA, Hollywood. <laughs> I'm Scott McEwen, uh, pediatric nephrologist at the University of Minnesota. My fun fact is that during the quarantine, I got uh, pretty into crossword puzzles and just competed in my first crossword puzzle tournament uh, where I did not do very well. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that 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 is really a tough, tough kind of hobby to have. You know, I've been failing at the New York puzzle for decades now. Yeah, I I thought I was good, but there are some amazing people out there. Uh, Hi, I'm Amy Bobrowski. I'm a pediatric nephrologist at Cleveland Clinic Children's. A fun fact would be I um, actually in college double majored in biology and Spanish and did the Spanish as a full major, mostly because I wanted an excuse to spend a semester in Spain, which is how I met my husband who is not in medicine. So I think it it worked out like it was meant to. Okay, well, uh, thank you for those introductions. Um, We'll go ahead and start with Dr. Brophy. Dr. Brophy, as the PIS program committee chair this year, what was it like to organize a conference using a completely new format in the middle of a pandemic? Wow, so uh, I think like like everything, uh, our entire world got turned upside down. And last year um, we had planned a full meeting and then had to cancel at the last minute. So um, one of the opportunities that came up is uh, one of the um, challenges that we've had in the past is a lot of different um, coexisting sessions. So people, you know, couldn't necessarily get to the sessions they wanted to. 
And uh, what has happened with, with COVID and that's going to for pull virtual is the ability to actually have recordings and actually spread the meeting out a little bit. So we've been able to actually uh, allow people to get to all the sessions they want. So that's one benefit. Uh, the logistical challenge of putting this meeting together was pretty significant. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the amazing people uh, from the uh, committee, the executive committee at PAS that have really helped uh, do the lion's share of work here. So uh, it's been, uh, it's been eye-opening. It's been interesting. It's been educational. Uh, but I think it's actually um, given us uh, a lot of opportunity to, um, to move things forward. And so hopefully next year we'll be able to do at least partly in person. So maybe a hybrid meeting, hopefully we can do the whole thing. Uh, but I think that um, having the virtual component has given us an opportunity in the future to um, really change how we do meetings. And I think most of us uh, are okay with it. Um, you know, it's a long meeting to begin with. And so being on Zoom for a prolonged period of time can be difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, we're learning as we go. And I'm actually very pleased at how things have gone so far. I agree with you that the PAS committee has done an excellent job this year. I've really enjoyed this conference uh, so far. And actually, you already answered my next question, which is that do you see a virtual component to next year's conference? So uh, we'll be looking forward to that. Um, what has been your most favorite session so far? Wow. Um, you know, I have to say, uh, I'm going to split this up because I'm a peds nephrologist. I'm a little biased. Uh, but I thought the, um, the inaugural um, Spitzer lecture was outstanding with uh, Andy McMahon. Yeah. I just, uh, I thought it was just remarkable. And it was a really great honor to Adrian Spitzer, who's one of our founders. Um, the Schnapper lecture, uh, again, another outstanding lecture. So, um, you know, in nephrology, I would have to go with those two. I think um, from the meeting as a whole so far, though, uh, I thought uh, Dr. Walensky's opening session was very inspiring. I thought it was very foundational. Uh, she focused on a lot of the issues that we're all dealing with and put it in context uh, of us looking after kids. And at the end of the day, um, you know, it, it really is about what we do uh, for kids. And, and I think all of us, no matter what we, what angle we come from, what specialty, all of us are in this because we have some, some um, you know, focus on providing the best care for kids and families and really helping every child reach their fullest potential. Absolutely. I think we yeah. all agree with that sentiment. Um, I think we also had uh, the governor of New Mexico on, Michelle Lujan. Yeah. Yeah, I, I caught that. Was and that was, she was amazing. I thought she was a physician yeah. at first and then realized I, she was a um, lawyer. So, <laughs> so that you was know, I, I thought it was, it was, I, I thought it was fascinating listening to her. So before they had even declared it a global pandemic, she actually had her team up and moving. Uh, because they recognized uh, a lot of the signs that were coming. And I thought that was very fortuitous. And, Absolutely. you know, um, I, I think all along, you know, uh, obviously all of us have had issues with this and each state has had their own specific uh, issues, but I think New Mexico did pretty well with this. And, uh, you know, again, if you're planning for it and you have, uh, you know, protocols in place to develop this, it's really, I think, key to being able to mitigate um, longstanding damage, not only, in terms of deaths, but also in terms of our economy and, and our kids, you know, not going to school, and sort of missing out on a lot of uh, 
opportunities that we all had, so. Dr. Brophy, I have one last question for you. Um, PAS always has so much to offer and I'm always overwhelmed by all of the opportunities when I attend a meeting like this. Do you have any tips for junior faculty on how to get the most out of PAS? Yeah, you know, um, this year we actually really focused on developing a trainee zone and uh, about, we have over 2000 trainees at this year's meeting uh, virtually. And our last in, in person meeting, we had over 3000. And I think what that really does is give you an idea of how foundational this meeting can be to network and to actually gain experience. So um, for trainees or junior faculty coming into play, uh, again, this year is a little different because you can actually watch the um, uh, watch any of the program uh, programming on demand as uh, as time goes by. Um, you know, at the meeting itself, um, pick what you really want to do. Really focus on it. So go through the schedule. Pick the topics you want. Don't be um, don't be shy. I mean, if there's something that looks interesting to you, go to it. And I think the best part about it is being able to actually ask your questions, network with the folks you want to network with, because at the end of the day, that's what it really is. This is a network of pediatricians, pediatric specialists, child health specialists who really, um, you know, have a common purpose. And that's really to provide the best, um, the best care that we can provide to uh, families and patients. But this meeting is really to focus on academic medicine. And there's so many facets to it. It's such a rich, rich area. And there's so much opportunity for everybody. So it's easy to get overwhelmed. uh, But just remember, it's okay. You can pick and choose what you want to do. This year is really, I think, uh, an extraordinary year because you will not miss anything if you don't want to miss it. Because you can watch stuff on demand afterwards. So pick what you want. Reach out to people that you would not normally reach out to uh, because we're at a meeting. And it's, it's really that opportunity to network. So don't be shy is what I'm saying. And if, we, there's, if there's a door open, go right through it. Absolutely. And we can give you some feedback right away that we are all loving the online Q&A format. And I think that needs to stay. <laughs> I, I, I think it does too. I've actually used it. It's, uh, it's phenomenal, actually. So, and I have to say, uh, once again, you know, we went live yesterday with seven live channels. And as far as I know, that is the biggest um, opening that any national or international meeting has had. Uh, certainly that I've been to. Um, and so everything went uh, pretty darn well. So well, if, knock on wood. If we'll anyone keep, can uh, pull it, if anyone can pull it off, it'll be a pediatric nephrologist, Dr. Brophy. Hey, you know it, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Um, <clears throat> one no, you, one last plug. Uh, yesterday, uh, no, sorry, the day before yesterday, we actually had our white paper, our workforce um, a uh, white paper come out in the Journal of Pediatrics. And I would um, suggest that everybody have a look at that. It really gives us a perspective on the work we have to do as a group, as a, a group of pediatric nephrologists. And I think it really um, impacts on us to really advocate as much as we can for each other and also for our future. So, and you get this, uh, it's a Twitter, actually I know it is because I put it out there. So if you get a chance, uh, have a look at it. Uh, it, it's pretty, it's pretty sobering, but I think it also opens up opportunities for hope. So anyways, peas and nephrology is awesome.
I certainly did the right thing. And so I don't think you could ever go wrong doing it. Well, this is a biased crowd. So. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I kind of like that. <laughs> but, uh, but we, I must say that, you know, uh, we were, we are all thrilled that you are leading this uh, huge conference and it's such a great honor to have you on the show too today, but we have a very important question for you, right, Rebecca? Oh, oh no. Yes. Well, I mean, we heard a little bit about the Brophy Trophy, but I want to know kind of the details. What, what am I looking forward to? I've heard it's on the way. It's arriving here at my desk eventually. So what is this about? So um, <clears throat> a few years ago, one of my uh, former fellows, who's now a, an attending physician, uh, decided uh, we were having a holiday party and we were doing a, a gift exchange. And so uh, <laughs> she showed up with key rings with uh, a picture of me holding a cat with a uh, holiday sweater on. And uh, she had it also put on a, a coffee cup. <clears throat> and so not wanting anybody else to get it, I actually outbid everybody for it. And it cost me uh, a little bit of cash to get that cup, but I, I got it and took it home. So uh, this past year um, during the pandemic, we were trying to figure out ways to uh, raise a little bit of money to help uh, develop travel scholarships for trainees for ASPN. And so um, my former fellow, uh, who has an excellent memory, by the way, and I will mention her name, Lindsay Harshman, um, yes. <laughs> remembered that, that the cup was around somewhere. And so she contacted me and I said, yes, I have the cup. And so what happened was we actually put a little uh, bidding war out on Twitter and we raised... Um, uh, over a thousand dollars for travel uh, grants for our trainees, <clears throat> and the the bidding war uh, ended up so that it, it's uh, it went to our, my surgical colleagues here in Rochester because they had to have it, so they're holding it right now, and I'm I'm terrified to, to see what's going to come of that. But uh, from here here it goes to Boston, and then Cincinnati, and then Iowa, and then Seattle, and so uh, it it is uh, yeah. It, it's uh, it's a horrible picture of me with a cat and I'm not a cat person. So anyways, <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's worth it. Uh, we raise money for travel grants and I'm happy to do that. I think it's, it's fantastic. So. Well, we think, uh, we think the Brophy trophy needs to travel across the country and maybe even to Germany. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, <laughs> Well, I, I actually was speaking with, with Dr. Harshman yesterday, and she, uh, she has uh, something else scheming along, too, because she started asking me questions. And I always get nervous when she asks me questions, because I don't know what it, I don't know what's uh -huh. coming. But uh, it was about uh, having some other um, custom-made items, apparently. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. Well, Dr. Harshman, <laughs> if you're tuning in and listening to this, uh, the sediment is happy to help you in these efforts. <laughs> Uh, it's good. It's, it's, it's good fun, you know, and, and really, I think the best part is helping our, our trainees get out and, and come and meet us and come and uh, see us at meetings like this and hopefully live meetings in the future and, you know, just get interest in, in ASPN. Obviously it's a pretty fun group of folks. So, and I'm uh, certainly privileged to be part of it. And actually this is my uh, last week is the past president of the American Society of Peas and Nephrology. So, I'll be moving on from that, but that's been a wonderful experience as well. And so um, I'm looking forward to continuing to work with all of you.
Thank you for your service, sir. And also, I think we'll all get together again for the business meeting of the ASPN, which I didn't realize until today that it's not going to be in phase one, but it's no, going to yeah, be phase on. two. Yep. 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 I'll definitely be there. So absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you all. And thanks for all you do. And thanks for all you do for kids. Bye. Yeah, thanks. Go yep. Bills. <laughs> <laughs> Go Bills. <laughs> I think that's an amazing transition because I think probably one of the most important questions in all of transplant is how do we get our patients to actually adhere to taking their medications? <laughs> I tried to ask people here, what would be the question you would ask our panelists today? And unfortunately it just led to the same question, which is how do we get our patients to take the medications? So I wouldn't say that I got any more kind of deep into that. But I do think there were so many amazing questions that came up today. And I think Dr. Pruitt's talk today alluded to the effect of social constructs on adherence. And as we all know, this year brought issues of racial, socioeconomic, gender uh, inequities to the forefront. So what impact do you think these issues have brought um, to the topic of adherence in transplant? Yeah, I mean, I think the one really important thing is actually to do some kind of profiling who, who is like a risk person to lose adherence. So, so I think the, the, the presentation and, uh, and the talk of, of um, Cosima was really important to show all the different characteristics of people who, are, who may have a risk of, of developing non-adherence because then we, we know who can be, who is like, in danger of, of, of being the person. So, so I like this very much. And I think this is a, this is a very important step to, to do some kind of profiling, to understand what is causing non-adherence or what is actually beneficial for adherence to, to help uh, and find uh, uh, you know, better tools to help the children and the families. So um, I like this very much to start from, from her. Well, and I think one of the things we have to start doing is moving towards, like you said, if we can find a fingerprint or the markers that we're looking for, moving away from just profiling what we think it is and actually moving to change to things that we can do to affect those things. Like I think that for a long time, we've talked about who does what and profiling people based on certain characteristics, but what is the actual action you can do to change those things? And I think that until I think that that is the big question because I think we can keep describing things over and over again, but we have to actually do something to change the inequities. And I think that that's going to hopefully bring with the, with this increased focus, at least in my mind, I'm hoping that it moves from just examining a difference to actually changing a difference. It'd be more active to do something, right. And, 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 and to move forwards to identify, you know, the proper tools and, um, you know, I'm, Sometimes when I, when I look at the, all these tools we're doing, all these activities, which I was really impressed to see what's happening in the U.S. actually by, by, by looking at all these regional initiatives, the national initiatives, you know, the, the implementation of innovative e-tools. I was really impressed. And, and also, at the same time, I realized that you have the same problems we are facing in Europe. It's, it's like like one-to-one, -one, right? And, and probably it's not a problem. It's just like evolutionary. It's just like part of it that, you know, at, this, at a certain years... Of, 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 you know, uh, childhood, we are losing them. And then later on, they're coming back because it's just a part of, you know, uh, maturity or something. I don't know. But 
see, yes, I think that that um, we have now to, 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 you know, establish new tools. But also at the same time, we also we are now at the point actually that we also have to quantify what we are doing. I mean. Mm-hmm. Already some steps have been taken, but we don't know if this is really successful because mm-hmm. everyone is doing a little bit, but mm-hmm. we really have to see now that we are at the point to really check what we are doing. And in some parts, I think that we, some of the problems, also some things we're doing in Europe, sometimes are very, let's say again, bringing up, not helping the, the patients to become independent from us or to be, be like, like, you know, um, to make the decision on their own. We're just preparing so many paths for them that they just follow again. And we just postpone the independency or that they, so, so, so it's time for us to, on one side to establish new things, but again, also to quantify what we're doing actually and, and evaluate. Well, and that was actually one of my favorites was when they were talking about transitioning and you could see that actually giving people that independence. So not only giving the tools to improve their adherence, but giving them tools to be independent. And as you said, you have to actually track what does that do for you? And to see that graph of the creatinine, and again, it's small numbers, but to see that you could see that after you allowed kids to learn how to be adults, that they were able to keep their creatinine sta- more stable through that transition period into adulthood was so impressive. And again, it gave me hope uh, because I think, as you said, it was almost, there was a part of it that you felt like you felt heard watching these talks because you could see that everyone was having the same problem, but seeing that somebody could succeed in an intervention was also very heartening because I think if you see that everyone has the same problem, you could feel yeah. hopeless. But I think instead there was hope. Yeah. I totally agree with this. This is, uh, I like this graph also very much. It was very impressive to see the changes. But then the other, there was another graph. I was really impressed where you looked at the the increase of creatinine, but also some of the patients already started before transition, mm-hmm. like this red line. And so actually, this was the the part where we have to look as a pediatricians to identify in particular these patients because you know they started to have this this, this climbing creatinine before the transition, mm-hmm. and 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 that's also our job to to you know pick these to find these patients, these families, and give them, you know, a little bit more support probably and 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 help than other patients. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting and you know, it's a huge challenge for us these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the other part of transition that could play a big role is the social networks that Dr. Hunley mentioned during the adherence QA today. Um, when you asked about the possibility of social networks helping to improve adherence. Um, I can think of a number of my own patients, especially teenagers who would benefit greatly from meeting other teenagers like them. But I found that it's really difficult to make that, help them make that connection due to HIPAA laws and other obstacles. So um, do any of your institutions have a process for plugging patients into social networks in a systematic way? We, it's, it's totally ad hoc. We don't have a system, but we, we start with um, a family or a patient who are similar um, in ways that we, you know, in some obvious ways and that, that might be able to speak to each other. And we ask one patient, would you be willing to be called to discuss your, your, um, you know, your, your story. And then if they say, yes, would you allow us to give your phone number to the, the patient we're interested in talking to someone? 
So it's, it's very ad hoc. It's not systemic, but, um, uh, but at, at the same time, it, you know, sometimes people never reach out in those situations where you say, it seems like you might uh, benefit from talking to someone who's gone through what you go through. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. The other thing that's been difficult it, in 2020 and, and this year is kidney camps aren't happening or they're, they're virtual only, which, um, you know, a, a meeting, what we're doing can happen virtually. We're talking about what we'd be talking about at the meeting, but camp is not about being on the computer. It's about, you know, playing and canoeing and et cetera, et cetera. And the dialysis and the medicines are there to, to, and the nurses and doctors are there to make that, make them able to have fun in a camp sort of way. So I think next year it'll be hopefully camp participation. We can, we can get our kids back in. Yeah, I think um, just speaking to that same thing, I think informally, we've had a lot of nonprofits. Most children's hospitals have had a lot of help from parents and, you know, the parent in, involvement in these groups. And that also has suffered this year because generally, you know, our society, our communities are suffering. So it's been hard to pull in the funds for even these patient initiated group outings. Like we had a great group where all chronic illness kids used to get together once a month and do age appropriate activities together. And it took the teenagers a very long time to kind of get comfortable and open up. But after six months or seven months, they made some enduring connections through those groups. But those systems have collapsed with the pandemic too. I will put a plug in. Um, it's a little bit off, but um, I was sent a slide that I should have shown during our moderation saying, join the ASPN because um, apparently the pandemic has, has decreased um, membership in the ASPN. So, you know, when we all join and pay our dues, there are, there can be more sort of outreach things that get thought of and get, have funds available to do them. Yes, Dr. Ahn's um, leading our membership committee, and uh, we have been concerned that people who were signing up every year have not re-upped their membership this year. So if you're listening and you're one of those folks, please, please, please contact Sarah or go online and redo your membership because this is a great community and we need all the help we can get. Um, so I know that we have a lot to talk about today. So should we move on to talking about our transplant session? Because there was a lot going on there. So um, the first two speakers, Dr. Marks and Dr. Egan, both reviewed several strategies for increasing organ availability. Which public policies do you think would have the biggest impact on increasing organ availability here in the United States? Oh, that is a... Fabulous question and not an easy one. And I actually loved these two talks being right by each other. I thought it was two different ways to look at um, a huge problem and very discrepant from each other. So Dr. Marx's talk was more about expanding the donor pool in general. So not turning down organs that maybe we usually turn down, um, just, um, extended criteria donors, um, donation after cardiac death, um, the considering using pediatric deceased donors, um, as well as, as well as, um, and this was what most um, 
most struck me too is, especially with comparing with Dr. Engen's talk was um, the HLA incompatible and ABO incompatible donors um, with the caveat that if you could do a parrot exchange uh, program, which they do have a national parrot exchange program in the UK, that that would be the preferable route to go. So that talk really was more focused on expanding the whole donor pools, you get more people, more kids, um, including those higher risk kids are going to have a hard time finding a kidney transplant, getting them kidneys. I think where the disconnect is, is Dr. Engen's talk was really about for the majority of kids who are not sensitized, who are not high risk, how do we get them the best kidney for them that's going to have the best long-term outcome? And how does it affect their overall survival benefit? for years to come, including their ability to get a successful second transplant someday. So I think both were very good points, but really maybe had um, different take home points depending on what specific patient recipient population you're, um, you're taking care of at that time. So I think they were, it was really st stimulating to have them both right next to each other and have that discussion together. Um, I think the big question is, you know, a lot of us were trained with kids, preemptive transplant is best. Less time on dialysis is best. So you have parents coming to you for a second opinion or transplant evaluation. They wanna know how fast their kid's gonna get through your system and get their transplant done compared to if they are looking at another institution. But is that always the best route? If one institution has the is going to be more careful and thoughtful about HLA matching, um, as opposed to just the first kidney that comes along that technically will work for your child. What in this day and age, what's the best option? Um, and I think we, we thought we knew that answer. We always thought earlier transplant, faster transplant for kids to optimize their growth and development was the best. But now as we're looking down the line to needs for future transplants and really having this first transplant last the longest, I think a lot of us are having second thoughts about that. And, um, and it really is an individualized process for each for each recipient. I, I promised I wouldn't talk much, but I'm going to, you know that, right? <laughs> I just, um, I just, you know, so, I mean, it seems like this is a vulnerable population and it just seems that in this day and age, we should be looking for unified policies for transplantation. Is that a naive question? Are we not at a place where we could all get together and say, these are the best ways we should work up somebody and these are the best ways we should transplant somebody and use that at every center. I think that's a great point. Hopefully we're going that way. And I think it, the thing is, it doesn't only affect pediatric patients. Part of this is when we're talking about deceased donor utilization, what we do affects the adult pool. And as if, if we're talking about things that might take longer for kids to get kidneys, we might need some extra buy-in from the adult transplant community for them to really understand how that affects this very this very high risk for future um, cardiovascular death and you know needing future transplants. Why why it is important to prioritize their children, not just that these children, not just for uh, having less waiting time on the list, but why should they be prioritized over adults necessarily to get a better match to even if they're not sensitized, if that makes sense. So I think it's it's one thing for us to have as a pediatric community, I think we could come to some agreement, um, but we also don't wanna be in the, in the situation where we're turning down kidneys that now aren't getting used by any children um, 
so I, I think it's it's a bit more complicated and hopefully we'll be get to a place where we can figure that out. That's right. It's a lot of food for thought, right? Because yeah. there's equity and there's also justice, you know, so all of that uh, plays into these um, policy decisions. Right. So that was a hard question. I really didn't get into public policy because I don't know what to do with that off the top of my head. We, we don't yeah. ask the easy questions on the sediment. <laughs> yeah, I stayed quiet. Thanks for feeling that one, Amy. No problem. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I realized uh, with today's transplant session was that there's a common theme with this entire conference, and that has been the use of emerging biomarkers in many different fields of pediatric nephrology from AKI to K-cut to transplant. So how do you think biomarkers will change our clinical practice maybe five to 10 years from now in transplant? Yeah, uh, real good question. And it, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, a lot of the sessions kind of have this common theme. It's a hot topic. Um, so Dr. Bright Hansen, he gave that talk, which was a really, I think, pithy overview kind of on, first of all, in peds nephrology and, and kidney transplantation, how bad of a, a biomarker creatinine is, which is the one that we all use day to day. Um, and, you know, going from, you know, the initial, uh, um, you know, cell mRNA message being uh, abnormal all the way to tissue injury. He talked about, um, I think the transcriptome changes and then proteome changes and then the whole metabolome, um, you know, getting up to uh, kind of precursors to what we would typically see on protocol biopsies. So um, there has, and again, his talk was excellent as a, a review talking about all of the work that's been done. There's been biomarkers that have been studied. There's some really promising ones, both, you know, kind of in a urinary transcriptome. He emphasized that um, compared to previous ones, which were looking at maybe just a serum mRNA message or just a urine mRNA message, probably a combination. I think he used the word multi-omics. Um, it seems to be more promising going forward. Um, but I, as a you know, pediatric transplant nephrologist, I'm hopeful that it's not five to 10 years away. I know there's work going on. You know, there's the, um, I think the true graph coming out uh, for clinical use, which is a, um, you know, a serum uh, signature. And then, uh, you know, there's work going on with the deceased donor cell-free DNA. Uh, I think there's upcoming trials in pediatric uh, transplantation. So uh, it is an exciting time. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have one in clinical use day-to-day -day just yet, but it seems like it's coming and hopefully going to replace that protocol kidney biopsy. Things seem to be changing very quickly in transplant. Um, I'm not a transplant nephrologist, so I'm in transplant clinic very rarely, but every time I go, something new has come up and so something has changed with our protocol. So um, it's a rapidly evolving field and we're looking forward to um, all of these new advances for sure. Yeah, I did kind of want to bring up, I, I really love that you have us from these two sessions together for this um, because I think they really, go well together. Um, when you're talking about long-term outcomes of kidney transplant and pediatrics, it's really all about adherence. And it's really that transition piece that ties it all together. And I think that's something that was stressed through a lot for, through both sessions, um, that that's really our kind of our spot that needs the most active work and a lot of support and investment right now is even once we figure out these, um, 
these methods to improve adherence and say and think that they work and have proven that they work, how are they going to carry on? How are we going to translate that knowledge and those practices um, across to the adult side? Um, and it really, it really requires a, a process and a defined program with adult buy-in um, to, to really assure the improved outcomes that we're looking for, including the cardiovascular outcomes ultimately that um, Dr. Ku um, focused on on her talk um, at the end of our session today that, you know, we're starting to work on these risk factors when they're young, but I have the feeling until recently when we sent these young adults over to the adult doctors, they thought of them as their healthy, doc their healthy patients that were just kind of annoying because they didn't always follow up like they were supposed to but so much healthier than their older patients. And I think it's really changing that, um, that view and saying, no, these are kids that are, have the cardiovascular risk factors of people twice their age, or maybe even more. And you need to follow them like that, but also not just medically, they need, um, I mean, they need the support of, they might still need more intense social worker and dietary support than you're used to giving your adult patients in clinic. And a lot of places that's not funded necessarily in their adult transplant clinic. They share dietitians and social workers with the rest of the hospital system. And that I, I think it's really, um, these long-term outcomes really are going to depend on, on improving the transition process across the board. Yeah, and and uh, I think the 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 way forward is you know how do we get these paid for? Because we talked a lot about uh, you know having the clinics where you have the adult uh, team and the peds team together, and there's only a certain amount that will be paid for before you know insurance companies mm -hmm. say we are not going to pay for two nephrologists to see this patient at the same time. And so, I don't think two nephrologists is, is necessary very much of the time. I think it's really the other support staff and just that you right. make sure you have the right adult nephrologist who actually has been educated and is invested and cares about this particular subpopulation. Right. So I think it's uh, sort of like a challenge for our MedPeds colleagues, right? <laughs> They're ideally placed to be transition doctors. Right, right. See, but I think in some ways, this reminds me yesterday, Suda, you talked about when we're talking about, you know, the health of doctors, for example, and working towards burnout, can you just talk about doing more yoga? And I think this, is, this I feel like this makes me think the same thing, because we, this reminds me of doctors should just work harder, like we should just do more yoga, the adult doctors should just do a better job taking care of our peds patients. But I think this is where we've got to reach out to our policy committee. Because this is, and I, it's not just for nephrology. I think we are biased, right? We want our kidney patients to do better. But I think especially this year, we're seeing how medicine is failing all of the people. It doesn't yeah. matter whether you're a child. It doesn't matter whether you're an adult. It's, um, and this is a place where we fail because kids are cute. And in some ways we can get a little bit more, right? We can, and we can get people to pay a little bit more. We can get a little bit more support for them. But once you're an adult, you're not cute anymore. And so all of that support structure falls away and, and um, it's not fair, right? We did, they didn't choose to have kidney disease and they should be able to be taken care of when they're cute at six and when they're not as cute at 25. Um, and I, I hopefully 
we are slowly eking towards some policy changes that will improve our medical care here, but it's really structural. But yes, I do want those adult doctors to work harder with our patients, but hopefully we will also get yeah, some. Yeah, I, I do want to say that I'm pretty proud that I think was it now everything's coming together as one pandemic year for me, but it may be 2020 that we actually got the immunosuppression drugs uh, act passed. So yeah. I thought that was a huge day. I could not stop smiling all that day. So yes, we need to do more, but we also need to own our wins. We are working hard for this community. We are working hard for these children we take care of. And we're all, I think, as a group, very passionate about the care we want to provide for these children. And when we look at those adolescent statistics, we all feel like we fail. <laughs> That's why we need the graph where we see that something infected their creatinine. It did so make we need it, we those, make we need it those biomarkers and we need <laughs> those uh, transition clinics and we need all the help we can get from policymakers. Yes. Yeah. And At the I, same time, one of the questions I had, which I, I did not ask the speakers was, you know, of, of the uh, adherence session. Um, it's, I sort of formed it as we were finishing and it was too late, but I wish I'd ask each one of them, What's one thing we can do two days from now in clinic mm -hmm. to increase adherence? You know, be it, you know, what's what's something what's something that I skip over every time in clinic that's really a health literacy issue, and they they never understand what I'm saying when I say that, and yet they are maybe too intimidated or to ask. You know, how do we how can we elicit information like that or, you know, that kind of thing? What's something uh, in terms of it, it, in, in all the different areas, um, is there a way we could contact you that would help something that, you know, the doctors and nurses taking care of these patients could do in a few days? I, I don't know. Well, I think as a community, we all have tips and tricks that we've just picked up along the way. And we need to sort of put that in, into our think tank and share these and ASPN is a great community where we do these things, but that's, that's a great thought, you know, because we walk away from PAS and like, I think I probably said this on another episode is that we're all fired up. We feel so good after having come together, learned all these new things. And for the month of May and June, I am at the top of my game in clinic. And then, <laughs> then life starts to get to me. And, you know, there are days where I know I walk out of that room and I think, oh, I should have spent more time. I don't think they got what I was saying, but I don't have time to go back in there. So teamwork with having the uh, teaching piece with the medication, I think that's a huge thing. Um, having easy resources available, those patient handouts that I think one of our committees has worked very hard on creating patient handouts, um, having pictures of the medications and then having the names and having them buy or trilingual. That's my piece. I always try to make sure I have everything in Spanish and uh, Chu, which is another uh, the Guatemalan uh, dialect that uh, I see a lot of patients. So we try to make sure we have those three languages, all handouts with pictures. So it, I mean, health literacy has nothing to do with, uh, you know, uh, language barriers. I get that. So please don't get on my case about that. I'm just saying <laughs> that it helps to have, it helps to have uh, all of these kind of barriers thought about. And that's what I feel, but I want to hear what the panelists think. 
Well, actually, I, I have some people who are just designated to take care of this particular period of this time because I'm aware that I don't have the time. Even though I realize there is this problem, I, 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 I'm always running out of time. I'm always too tired. I'm always, you know, too, whatever, busy to talk to my patients, even though I want to do it. And, and also the nurses these days, they don't have the time. So, 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 so that's what, what I did the last, you know, couple of months to, to raise some money and, you know, hired some people. And it's just a job to do this and talk individually to the patient. I think the thing is, the whole thing about transition is, is actually, it is the very individual, um, uh, um, let's say, support that the patients need. Someone needs transition, help, help for transition. Other families are happy or children are happy to leave children hospital and become finally an adult. And, and, and we cannot, you know, you know, find a general way to, to take care of all these patients. They, they, they need individual paths. So, so I think that's, if I, you know, that's what I would do. I mean, again, because the other things take so long. And, and I think that they, these, these people who have some time and, and spend some time with the patients, they're really helpful. I do think there was, yeah, there was the one presentation where that was going to be the one that I was going to say, where they said just time with the nurse. And I don't know if it has to be a nurse, but they said purely just having five minutes more made a difference. Mm -hmm. The relative risk uh, mm -hmm. for um, bad outcomes went down for, um, it was quantifiable for every five minutes extra with a nurse. Yeah. So I felt like, okay, I don't have a lot of things, but that has actually some things that for some reason, you know, I've worked now, this is the third nephrology division I've worked within and here they have a lot of nursing. So I was just thinking that, wow, that's actually something that they do. The nurses will ask, do you need anything with this visit? Is there anything that I can do to help you with this? And that's actually a new thing that I'm not used to having. And so seeing that I'm like, oh, okay, that's actually something I'm underutilizing um, that clearly that makes a difference. One of the, um, uh, there are multiple uh, checklists for transition, and it does make me think in the five minutes of nursing, you know, at, at periodic visits, they could start to progress through some of those, exactly. whereas it's going to be harder for us. Sorry, Scott. Yeah, no, that's okay. It's, uh, and I feel bad because your session obviously was the one on adherence, but uh, Elaine Koo's talk at the end of ours was, you know, talking about a lot of these things. First of all, I wanted to make the point that it goes both ways. Uh, she showed slides that physician adherence to our own guidelines uh, is not 100% perfect. Uh, I think that goes a lot to the time that we have to spend with the patients. She showed data on, you know, blood pressure uh, uh, management being improved when uh, patients at home were given, you know, some control over their own medications, as opposed to just standard care coming into the office. Uh, the IROC collaborative and pediatric transplant has data to support that as well. Um, but uh, along the exact same lines, what everyone was saying, uh, she also showed, you know, adherence to uh, diet and, and activity levels, things that we all advocate, um, absolutely improved when there was resources, you know, people taking the time, uh, and which, of course, means having some money there for it. I mean, these are, in my opinion, to answer your question, Dr. Hundley, that's blood pressure control. Um, improvement in diet, improvement in um, activity levels. There's data to show that I could do that tomorrow, um, but not alone as a you know, transplant nephrologist. I need you know, a multidisciplinary group, which takes uh, money and resources.
think it all goes back to policy changes because we can't get all of those resources without um, our our leaders recognizing that those resources are so important. Um, you know, who's going to pay for that social worker or that dietitian? Um, unfortunately, it all goes back to the money sometimes. An honor it was to be you know, part of the you know Bill Schnapper Memorial Lecture, mm-hmm. um, and you know, along with the lecture yesterday uh, for the ASPN and PAS to do these lectures um, as a memorial, I think was was wonderful. And, uh, you know, I wish we had 30 minutes to memorialize him because there was that much stuff to go over about his career. So, well, as Scott was, was saying, you know, today, Scott and I were very honored to be able to introduce the um, H. William Schnapper or Bill Schnapper MD uh, lecture. Um, it was given by Dr. Stephen Marks uh, from University College London, Great Ormond Street, uh, focusing on expanding the, the donor uh, pool for pediatric kidney transplant recipients and really went through an exhaustive list of all the ways we can improve improve access uh, to organs and increase that donor pool for this uh, vulnerable population. And I think it was a very fitting tribute to a wonderful man, uh, Dr. Bill Schnapper, who did so much to advance pediatric nephrology and the cause of the ASPN and advocacy and education and mentorship, you know, all, all through his, his life. And it was an honor to, to get to work with him and know him. And I know both, both Scott and I um, are very happy to be part of that today. Yes, it was a great loss to the community to lose him. And it's a great idea to honor his memory with this lecture every year. Yes. Well, so I think we were hoping people would say if you were going to have one take home thing you wanted to tell people that you take what they would want to take away from their experience today at POS, what would it be? <laughs> I'm like, I feel like I kind of said that in my other spiels where I wouldn't shut up. <laughs> I would say for me, I, one of the things that I am passionate about is just um, putting together data um, and knowledge. So I feel like watching this, I feel like we are talking about structural issues and needing to fingerprint the information so that we can get more uh, fine detailed data. And so I just really hope that as we move forward with policy, that we can be able to collect data in a larger way because we have kids that have such unique problems and they're all taking such unique paths. And if we really do want the data that we're talking about. If we really do want to understand what's happening to them, then we have to be able to take where we have in some ways, these are very large studies, but they're all still very small. And I really do think we're moving towards in the future, being able to make larger, you know, every year, I feel like we come together in a larger way. And I feel like it's kind of, hopefully someday it will be more of a tsunami and we'll be able to kind of create um, more information that we can use to make greater change, because I think that's what we need. And so here you see so much data, but it still feels, you know, every time it gets bigger, it's still very small. And so I think we're going to move there. Cause like you said, in transplant, we need to know, like we need to know more every time we know more, we need to know more. So I just, I'm excited to see how much we know, but I'm excited to see us know more. And I think we're going to use our power as nephrologists to make policy changes so that we can do that. So hopefully we can. Rebecca, going off on your point, um, I think my take home point from all of today's sessions is that collaboration and information sharing are so critical to successful outcomes. 
Um, you know, whether it's to enhance direct patient care, transition programs, research endeavors, or policy change, we can't do any of that without working together um, as a team toward a shared goal. So um, I think that's kind of the big take home point for me. And I just want to congratulate all for this wonderful Congress and all this, this wonderful, you know, seminars and whatever doing. We have to prepare our European meeting in September in Amsterdam. You're all welcome. I take all the, all the time notes and say, you know, they're doing it much better than we do. So let's <laughs> copy everything they're doing. It's really amazing. And uh, it's, it's, it's really great. And probably I think just, you know, to sum up is actually what you just said is, we can do it also on a global level. I mean, all the things we are do, talking about is now whatever we have is transition training globally and, and where you get like a certification or something because it's a training and we don't have to do it by ourselves. We can do it together and, and share and we should have like whatever, you know, some meetings where on, on a global level we discuss these things because it's, 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 it's not a, 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 it's a global problem. And, and also to, to, to improve or to strengthen our political influence and to get some more money for this, this kind of job. I think we, we have to join forces on this. So that's my take home message. Very well said, very well said. You know, <laughs> pain and suffering is universal and healthcare is universal. Mm -hmm. Can I say that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I've been thinking about um, is the, the concept that, that answering my own question of what can we take into clinic two or three days from now is a sense of, you know, we, this, this is true already, but, but re-emphasizing common humanity. Um, you know, we have a different role. They're in the sick role. We're trying to help them be, you know, not sick, but they have a chronic medical problem that they've got to, it's got to come up and they've got to do what they need to do, but we're here to help them because we care and we want the best outcomes from them. And to that degree, I suppose pediatric nephrologists are to some degree parental um, because, you know, we can see things and understand things that they don't understand. And, um, but common humanity means that, you know, we just, we have to keep emphasizing that we care about them and we want the best for them for those reasons. And I guess for me, I think it, it's basically summarizing what was said earlier, but um, you know, these, these conferences, I love them because it's all about these big, huge things that are happening. And, you know, in, in 10 or 15 years, maybe we'll be 3d printing kidneys, which <laughs> was not part of our session today, but uh, you know, uh, using biomarkers uh, or, you know, keep inching down or inching up those living donor rates um, for improved outcomes long-term. So I love the big picture, but um exactly you know, uh, from both sessions there was some take-homes as far as what can we do this week or you know uh, next week to improve outcomes so I, I like that too and it, it helps keep us going when there is a, such things like non-adherence and rejection that we keep um, battling and it, it can get tough in the dark days but uh, I always like you I'm, I take away hope and there's a lot of motivation after this. So Amy I think you're last. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> last well, but not the least well everybody's the last had, word <laughs> yeah well everybody's already had such good comments it's hard not to copy to some extent um again it's the collaboration and hearing how even though the the topics seem very varied how they all really have commonalities that um that uh we're all working towards um and again i and this isn't necessarily unique to today's sessions, but just I'm always impressed and inspired to see what everybody's doing and, and energized and motivated uh, to, to 
to go on, like, like you all were saying too, to go on and, and be a better doctor, be a better researcher, um, be a better teacher, be a better communicator with my, with my patients. Um, because I really do think that is a lot of what, um, affects the individual outcomes when you're not looking at a population basis, but the patient you're actually taking care of that day. If, if you can find the way to communicate, that's going to strike a chord and actually stick and make a difference. Um, you know, that that's really what, what makes what we do worth doing. I think we had a great discussion, a lot of food for thought for the future. Uh, and I already see that people are sharing images of uh, drinks on their Twitter feed. So <laughs> We're going to, if, if, if we were all meeting, oh, there you go, Dr. Hanley, hold that up. We need a group picture. Yes. Oh, that doesn't count. Yes. Everybody hold up. You guys have water. Well, oh, yeah, I have water right now. Thank you so much. It's Thank been you. a great session. Um, stay safe and good night. <laughs>